0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: So, um, I am going to give a talk this morning on um, the the three legs of Buddhism, and I'm going to speak specifically about one of them. And... um, <clears throat> the foundation and framework of Buddhist practice is based on uh, this quality that's referred to um, as virtue or sila. So um, I've given this talk before, our variations on this talk before, so if you've heard it, please bear with me. I think it's worth hearing again. So it occurs to me um, in my own Life and, in my own practice, uh, that uh, it's useful to reflect from time to time on what keeps uh, keeps me pointed in the right direction, what keeps us pointed in the right direction, so this isn't a talk about me, but a talk about um, this quality that i 'm going to refer to uh, in this talk as. Integrity, rather than as virtue. Um, it's a word that has more resonance for a modern audience somehow. But in Pali, sila is a word that refers to this quality of integrity or moral conduct. And um, so it's one of the legs of Buddhism. The three legs of Buddhism are Uh, sila, samadhi, and panya. So sila is integrity or virtue, moral conduct. Samadhi is meditation, practice of meditation. And then um, panya is the wisdom that comes from doing, uh, uh, from living in 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 integrity and um, practicing meditation and deepening our meditation. And Without the the foundational uh, support of integrity in our practice, our meditation is disturbed our meditation is uh, a little bit disruptive, so we all know what it 's like to sit down to meditate and have our minds bouncing off the walls and worrying about this and thinking about old. Um, resentments and hurts and planning future future activities and strategies and so on and so forth, so that it's hard for us to um, actually have a settled, stable mind. Um, and um, most of us here in the West, when we come to this practice, we come because we hear about meditation. Is that true for any of you? For me, it was like, oh... This meditation business sounds like it's interesting. I think I should explore that. I'm so glad I had that thought, by the way. But compare the time that you actually meditate with the time that you're in relationship to other people and other activities in your life. And you'll see quickly that meditation is just a small part of your daily activity. Even even in a monastery, you can only meditate for so many hours a day. I lived in a monastery, so I, I can say this from direct experience. There's only so many hours in a day when you meditate, and maybe you're meditating a lot more in a monastery than you would in your regular day, daily life. But the fact is that you are in relationship to the world and to other People and to understand that uh, Sila pays a big part in how we meet our meditation because of how we are in relationship to our life. So, uh, since most of our time is spent in daily life activity, and for those of you who haven't done Andrea's daily life course, I really encourage you to think about it. I, I did it about a year ago, and it's a, quite a powerful um, is it a week long? It's a week long course yeah, it's a week long course. It's quite quite powerful so, um, so it's wise for us to look at sila or this quality of intention uh, or integrity and its role in our lives, uh, not only for us as individual, but for us in relationship to the other people in our life. So the reason that the Buddha gave us um, the precepts, which are guidelines to live together in safety and harmony, uh, is so that we could Find some way to to be um, really in 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 integrity with our deepest core intentions, and to be able to recognize when we're living in harmony with other people or we're out of harmony. So he gave us um, five really important main precepts. I'm sure that you have all heard these before, but I'll repeat them here. Um, And these five precepts are intended to guide lay people in their daily life to keep us sort of on track. They are also part of the monastic code. So monks have to follow 225 or 227 rules we're asked to follow five and nuns get to follow 300 and some rules so <laughs> you women have it hard <laughs> but in the in the lay world the the five main ones are that we uh, refrain from taking life and harming others through aggression so not to kill but this uh, this non-harming is a quality that we can look at it on that simple level of not to not to kill which is definitely how it's intended but when we begin to look at these precepts we see that um, there's deeper and deeper ways to understand them so I'm going to give you an example uh, when I <coughs> when I was in the monastery in Burma, I read a a, a book, a non-Buddhist book, which was interesting by some uh, writer uh, from Arizona uh, here in the U.S. And uh, this man made a, a provocative statement, and he said that if we were to take any spiritual practice, we could pick any spiritual practice we wanted, um, and if we practiced it 24-7, that we would find our way to enlightenment with one spiritual practice. And he said, (coughs) so just choose a practice, and then see how quickly life gets in the way, so that you can't do this practice. And I thought, well, that's an interesting, what an interesting idea. So uh, I, I, I actually picked that as a practice to be with. And here I am living in a monastery, and um, um, I'm living basically in a heaven realm. It's so peaceful and beautiful and uh, there wasn't much violence or killing taking place in the monastery and I am not a, like a violent person I'm not angry I'm pretty even tempered and, and what you see is what you get but um, as I reflected on this precept I realized that there are many different ways that you can be violent and and um, I experienced violence towards myself in, in my own inner critic, my own, the voice within me that demanded perfection and pushed in I was so rough and, and un, unforgiving for myself. I would allow other people to be human beings, but for, for myself, that voice was really harsh, and I hadn't really connected with with that inner critic um, in quite that clear a, a way until I began to reflect on this particular precept, and I saw that there are many ways that we can be um, harming ourselves, and. Without intending harming other people because we're so abusive to ourselves in the way that we we sometimes treat ourselves, so refraining from killing and harming others through aggression or or um, even self aggression so the second precept is not to steal we've refrained from from taking that which isn't has not been offered, is the way that it's normally translated. And this is not just so that we don't walk off with the bell, but so that we can learn to trust ourselves, you see, and other people can learn to trust us. So for those of you who go on these meditation, silent meditation retreats at IRC or Spirit Rock or wherever you might happen to go on these meditation retreats. There aren't locks on the doors because there's a sense of trust that's um, established there that people aren't going to be walking into one one another's rooms and stealing things. And for the most part, that happens. I happen to have been on a retreat once where we were all in the meditation hall (laughs) And somebody went through two dormitories and stole everything. (laughs) Yeah, but it was it was down at Mount, Mount Madonna, and it was the first time it had happened in 35 years, and it's never happened before, and it never happened since. So, it was a fluke. But the idea here is that when we actually recognize. Uh, That it's not just about stealing, but it's about cultivating a quality of trust, trust in ourselves and trust in other people, trust in our environment. So when we practice, um, one of the main foundational qualities that we have to be able to create or find ourselves in is an environment of safety, and this comes through a quality of trust. You can't really close your eyes and meditate when you're feeling unsafe or feeling um, in some way vulnerable or threatened. So uh, the third uh, precept is that we respect our relationships in terms of our sexuality. We realize that sexuality is a powerful force in human life and we don't abuse other people or ourselves uh, with our sexuality, so um, we recognize the power of of that and the benefit of living in harmony with that understanding and then we use speech wisely we don 't lie or gossip or disparage, so um, we we take the precept to to not to lie or gossip or or draw people into conversations that are going to be um, uh, conversations that if who we're talking about wasn't, was present, we would alter the way that we were speaking. So, uh, so uh, speech is uh, profoundly um, powerful and the way that we use our speech affects us in a very immediate and direct way so i'll give you an example or two of of how this can happen in just a, sort of a daily life situation where where we're not even thinking about speech but we we get up one morning and we feel a little bit grumpy and um we go to work, and um we notice somebody does something that that um, just because we 're grumpy, it sort of rubs us in the wrong way, and so th- then we go over to the water cooler and somebody else comes up and um you know there 's this <clears throat> movement to say something about the person who we think t- ticked us off. <laughs> Or whatever and um, we won't come right out and say be really obvious but if you watch yourself carefully you can see this this irritability trying to draw this other person into some sort of gossipy conversation about the third person that's not there and people do things like this all the time it's not the end of the world but it's very very destructive And when, (coughs) when we (coughs) don't know that we're doing that, (coughs) this is how habits are formed. So, (coughs) excuse me. (coughs) So, (coughs) when, (coughs) when when we (coughs) are trying to cultivate wholesome habits. And bring them forth, or when we know that a wholesome habit has been cultivated, and we're trying to maintain that wholesome habit, um, <clears throat> we can do that through using speech wisely when we realize that we 're in the midst of something that's that's not serving us, and we want to um, um, change that, uh, we can just, by simply looking at what how we're using our speech, we can begin to actually turn ourselves around. It's almost like turning a ship, because speech becomes a habit, and the habit propels us in ways that we don't normally pay attention to because it seems so um, familiar and it seems so natural. But um, these habits affect what happens when we sit down to meditate. You see, you can actually track your internal dialogue while you're meditating and you're thinking and so on and so forth and catch the tone, tone of it. So, and all of that rolls back into what I said uh, initially about the first precept, which was uh, non-aggression, non-harm. And then the the last one is refraining from the misuse of intoxicants, which basically muddled the mind, and then we go and break the other re- re- precepts because we don't know what we're doing. So... <laughs> For lay people, um, uh, some people would say, so intoxicants would be things like drugs or alcohol. And um, many teachers will say for lay people, you know, to go and have a glass of wine or a a beer or something like that is um, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you don't, um, you know, drink to excess or, or whatever. And there are other people who say, no, the Buddha was very clear. Intoxicants cloud the mind, and one should refrain from it. So this becomes a, a, something that's a question for each one of us personally. So practicing, practicing any or all of the above are opportunities for training in, in body and speech. And living in integrity with these precepts really allows us to let down our guards it allows us to be um, more open more present more honest it actually allows us to be vulnerable because we can trust that we're we're operating in an environment of safety and um, uh, Trust is the foundation for personal and collective spiritual growth. So if you think about it, um, this makes a lot of sense. At least it makes a lot of sense to me. I hope that, that I'm, I'm communicating it clearly. Um, <clears throat> so there are three types of gifts in, in this practice, and the gift, and they are the gift of, uh, of uh, material things, uh, money or, or service. This is a quality of dana, And then the gift of the Dhamma or truth or the teachings that guide one to the truth. This is another gift. And then the gift of fearlessness. And this is the space where people can feel trust and where we don't have to feel constantly defended and on guard. Make sense? Yes? So the precepts are the foundation for this kind of space. And we experience this quality of trust and fearlessness in our meditation, or when we experience it, it frees us to let go more deeply into the heart. So understanding this, we can settle down and get deeper and deeper and deeper in our meditation practice. And when that happens, we oftentimes will find that we have some access to insights and, um, and growth in our own spiritual lives. And so <clears throat> it becomes safe for us to work with our feelings of turmoil chaos, confusion, anxiety, and fear. And in this space, there's safety and there's the opportunity to learn what it's like to actually relinquish, to let go. And this is what Buddhism really is all about. It's about letting go. The precepts provide us with uh, the foundation and container to make relinquishment or letting go possible. And this is because we can trust. So we train with and we use the precepts as a standard. And when we do this, the question becomes, how does it affect us? us? What are its benefits? And what are its challenges and so forth? So we can explore the function of the precepts and how they work in our lives. And this isn't so much a theoretical uh, exploration. It's a serious investigation into the ways in which the results of living by the precepts affect us directly, affect others, and affect the world around us. So training in the precepts is about, first and foremost, understanding our own core and deepest intentions. And the precepts are a framework for which we can um, reflect on this. They help us reflect back to us what's actually going on. And um, they create a framework or a foundation of trust, of clarity, of well-being. And they're the standards that we need in order to live safely and in harmony with one another. Okay, so <clears throat> there are four kinds of virtue or four kinds of integrity that I want to talk about. And these are listed in, in the commentaries. And the first is virtue according to precepts or moral conduct. So this is freedom from, from remorse, the first one. It's the fruit of moral conduct. And integrity. So when we're living with these qualities, um, these in in harmony with these precepts, we, as I said, we learn to trust ourselves. And when we are doing the best that we can, and that's all any of us can do as human beings, um, we do not have to um, worry about. Uh, Sinking into guilt and remorse, so the first form of of virtue or integrity here is moral conduct. when we follow the precepts, we live a moral life. The second form of uh, of uh, virtue is according to is Restraint of the senses, and this comes from the Vasuddhimagga. And this is a more internal training. It's dependent on mindfulness and clear comprehension. So, one who has this training in mindfulness and clear con- comprehension doesn't easily and automatically act out of greed or hatred or ignorance or delusion. Uh, when engaging the senses in seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, perceiving anything, so <clears throat> the fruit of this type of virtue is happiness. It's it comes from sense restraint. Happiness. The third form involves learning how much how to develop contentment and satisfaction in relation to the basic necessities of life. In other words, how much do we really need and how much is too much? So so this also goes back to century um, what, is, what? When are we being greedy? Or when are we, we, we being um, uh, harsh on ourselves? So as we reflect on living in a cu- culture here in America that consumes 40% of our planet's resources, we can ask ourselves what is appropriate consumption and not harmful. The fourth form of virtue is the virtue of livelihood. So living in ways that don't create problems for us or our communities or our world at large And these four kinds of virtue are all concerning the ways in which we live in relationship, uh, not only with others, but with ourselves. So when we live with virtue and integrity, the quality of non-remorse naturally arises. And the Buddha teaches that with virtue as a foundation, One doesn't need to create non remorse. Why do you suppose that is? If you if you live with virtue as a foundation, you really don't need to try to create non remorse. Any ideas? This is not a new based on you Exactly. It arises naturally. Non-remorse arises naturally because this is the way you're living your life. See, this stuff really isn't rocket science. It's just, we just have to think about it and then be willing to practice it. And when you practice the precepts, although, you know, say, oh, precepts, they sound like commandments. But when you actually practice the precepts or pay attention to them, you can see the benefits of them in your own life. You can see how they function and why the Buddha set these things out. And you can notice in your own meditation practice, when the mind is disturbed, whether you're out of sync with, with these basic core precepts, these precepts are really essential, in order in order to keep us sort of um, pointed in the right direction, in order to keep us feeling uh, a sense of uh, balance and purpose in what we're doing when we practice, because it's not easy to practice. Practice isn't isn't an easy thing, and in order to sustain it over the long haul, in order to make it a lifetime activity, we have to be able to reflect from time to time how we're doing and, and, and how we can keep ourselves not only on track, but in touch with our, our motivation and our intention. So <clears throat> non-remorse arises naturally when we practice with these things. And with non-remorse as a foundation, gladness arises naturally without an act of will. In other words, we ha- we're happy. We just become happy. It makes us feel glad. We experience this kind. There's a term that they use in uh, uh, in the monasteries, uh, which i i found myself falling in love with it was it's it's called the bliss of blamelessness <laughs> the bliss of blamelessness you see and when you have nothing <laughs> nothing to feel remorse about there's this quality of happiness that arises in you that is unmistakable and it's so simple that you think something <laughs> What's going on here? Something's wrong. Why am I so happy? And it's simply that you're living really in integrity with with your heart. And when we're happy, we have access to joy. Joy arises in us naturally. And when we know happiness and joy, the mind becomes tranquil. And when the mind becomes tranquil because it's not disturbed by things that we're regretting and feeling remorseful about, um, this tranquility leads to a profound, deep kind of happiness. And out of this happiness, what happens is that the mind is now primed for concentration. And the mind can settle down and samadhi can be established in the mind, this quality of just settling, just settling, settling, and stabilizing the mind. Samadhi itself is a natural condition that arises in the mind when the mind is happy. So people try to practice concentration. Believe me, I did it for years, forcing, 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 trying to struggle with the mind to keep it on the breath or some particular object. And and just hold it there. And I had no idea that that all of the um, disturbances in the mind were basically um, needing to be attended to in order for me to quiet down. So a quality like, see, these are all natural qualities. They just come When you settle, when the mind settles down and the mind settles down when you're living in the bliss of of blamelessness, (laughs) When, when things are, when you're happy, things just begin to unfold in this natural way. So non-remorse leads to gladness, gladness leads to joy, joy leads to tranquility, tranquility leads to happiness, happiness leads to concentration, and uh, a settled mind. And when the mind is concentrated and settled, it's possible for us to touch places of profound, um, and, and sometimes just simple practical insights that give us a different perspective and a different, re- and allow a different relationship with life to happen. And this is the the um, um, the birth of wisdom, the real birth of wisdom. So uh, the key is to pay attention to the happiness part. If you're trying to get concentrated, if you're trying to practice this quality of samadhi, it's not simply trying through the, an act of will to make the mind firmly established on a meditation object. It's to be happy. And then this quality of concentration happens naturally. You see, when when you... Go to bed at night, you know, and you're f- trying to force yourself to go to sleep. How easy is it to get to sleep when you're trying to force yourself to go to sleep? But when you just relax, sleep comes naturally, if it's possible to relax. And we can train ourselves, of course, in meditation. And one of the ways that we do that is by. Um, noticing when things are out of sync. You see? We notice, okay, I'm trying to force myself to be concentrated or I'm trying to force myself to go to sleep. This forcing is getting in the way. So uh, sometimes uh, we have to um, be willing to see the disturbances in the mind, in order to see what it would be like to not have them there and um, I was at a talk here last night and and this the speaker said something that I absolutely totally agree with, and that is that the defilements in the mind are the things that disturb the mind. Um, we don't have to wrestle with those things um, if they are clearly seen. We simply have to see them. And in the seeing them, there's a natural kind of uh, relinquishment, a natural kind of letting go. So we don't have to struggle with things like anger and jealousy. We simply have to recognize that anger and jealousy is has arisen and what it feels like and allow it to do what it does and our relationship to it then becomes equanimous our relationship to it then becomes one where we can feel safe because we're rooted in this quality of of integrity um, which is also like a refuge for us the precepts are really a refuge we talk about refuges in Buddhism and um and this is what a refuge is. Okay. So, um, according to the teachings of, of the Buddha, our experience of the world consists of our, our body, our feelings, our perceptions, our mental formations, and our consciousness, the five aggregates of being that, which constitute a human being, or what we call me or a self. So uh, the practice is to step back from our habits of perception, from the habits of the conditioned mind that flip-flop back and forth between liking and disliking, judging, approving, disapproving. We just need to see what our minds are serving up, and we need to be able to step back and hold it all with a quality of dispassion and disenchantment, not to be... Um, seduced by every thought and emotion that arises in our awareness and with this quality of, of dispassion in relation to the conditions that we experience, uh, we don't need to uh, an act of will or even an intention to liberate us why do you suppose that happens? It's because liberation happens naturally. At least that's what I'm told. (laughs) So so when we learn to live in harmony with these kinds of of practices, we don't need an act of will. We have to show up, we have to make an effort, but we don't need an act of will to liberate ourselves, to see things. Seeing liberates us naturally. You see, when anger is seen, we're liberated from the chains of anger. It's not who we are. It's not us. It's a simple emotion that's arising and passing. And and then we can see or jealousy or any any other thing it could be happiness, it could be any emotion it's it's not us we can just allow it, allow ourselves to meet whatever is as it is you see <clears throat> some of you know that i I teach the compassion course it's at, at Stanford and um in order to cultivate compassion, really in order to access compassion in a way that we can then uh, cultivate it as a quality, we have to be able to see suffering directly without um, deflecting it or turning away from it or trying to antidote it or... It's not that it's fun to suffer, But people suffer without acknowledging that they're actually suffering. They don't see their suffering directly. They suffer the effects of their suffering, you see. But when we move into she said this and he said that and projections and explanations and analysis. It's like we're filtering ourselves from that actual experience of suffering. But when we are able to meet that suffering in us directly, that core level where everybody knows um, what it's like to want not to suffer... Okay, let me talk about it that way. When you can touch that, then the heart will naturally respond with compassion. You don't make yourself be compassionate. Compassion is a natural quality in everyone that's sitting in this room, every one of us, you see. And it arises naturally when we're willing to meet that place for, within us that's in contention with the way things actually are. And that is what I would call the place of suffering. So suffering doesn't necessarily just happen by big major catastrophes in our lives or by, you know, breaking your arm or spraining your ankle. Uh, Suffering comes, um, the the, the continuum of suffering that is from the... the most minor um, experience where we want something to be other than the way it actually is. That moment is a moment of, of contraction, of contention. And we experience those moments throughout our day, which doesn't mean life is just suffering, but to recognize that suffering and to be with the experience in a direct way before we even say, oh, this is anger, or this is jealousy, or this is fill in the blank, before we defined that experience as anger or jealousy or whatever it happens to be, to meet suffering at that level would allow, allows the heart to actually awaken, uh, uh, our compassion to actually awaken in the heart and to come forth. So, so in the very same way with dispassion in relationship to the ever-changing conditions that we experience, we really don't need an act of will um, or even the intention to liberate ourselves because it just happens naturally. When we're able to see the truth of, our, of what's going on, the truth... You've all heard that expression: "The truth will set you free." In my own experience, that has proven to be true. When when I was when I am able to be honest with myself and be completely, radically transparent in that honesty, that has always been a, a gateway to freedom in my own experience. So the foundation for liberation, then, I will say, is living with integrity. It's living in, in harmony with this quality of sila. And it creates the conditions for the direct experience of that quality that I referred to earlier as the bliss of blamelessness, which is a beautiful, beautiful um, quality. So um, I wish that all of you live and move through this world sharing the bliss of blamelessness with everyone that you come in contact with. Um, we <clears throat> the world today needs a lot of help. Uh, and <clears throat> people like you and people like me have an opportunity to actually... Um, Um, declare and claim our agency in the world and our ability to make a difference not just in our own lives and in the lives of our family but in the lives of society. And I'll just end with a little quote by Maya Angelou. And uh, she says something that I love here. Your legacy is all the people that you touch. So... May you touch many, many people with the bliss of blamelessness. So, those are my thoughts for this morning. And um, we have a little bit of time if anybody wants to ask a question or make a comment.
0: So thank you. I think um, because I've always, or no, I shouldn't say always, because the idea of becoming authentic has caught my attention. Mm -hmm. I heard you say today that it can become natural to be authentic. It will just, it will be. Mm -hmm. And it will be if there's practice and Understanding that practice can can just become the natural way, and I, uh, mm-hmm. and I know I think Buddha said that we will have suffering. that's just kind of given, mm-hmm. and if we recognize that and nourish what helps us um, deal with the suffering or allow the suffering. Mm-hmm. It's, it always comes down to practice, practice, practice,
1: and <clears throat> and practice is um, challenging, and it does. It always does come down to practice, and <clears throat> what I what I find is that a lot of people um, struggle with practice because they overthink it they try to um, they try to drive it themselves and that and it can be a lot more simple and and <clears throat> one of the things that I was hoping to point out um, with this talk on on Sila is to see that you can s- start with what seems really just sort of mundane and basic um, <clears throat> but it's not it's basic but it's not mundane it's absolutely essential so <clears throat> as as i said in the talk most people in the west come to to practice through the through the doorway of meditation most of us want to learn how to meditate and and we think if we meditate <clears throat> the problems that we have are suddenly going to settle down or go away and many of us come because we're suffering that's how we come initially something's wrong in our life and we're looking for some way to to um sort of find some relief from that and so we hear about meditation meditation is made the mainstream now everybody uses the word mindfulness they They talk about it in Washington, and there's (laughs) anything but mindful. Uh, I shouldn't say that, but... Uh, But this quality of, of integrity, this quality of sila, it comes up sort of as an afterthought somewhere in our early part of practice. It'll be mentioned or something. But people don't... Most people don't really... Um, Turn their attention to it um, for a while, you see. I went on many meditation retreats, silent meditation retreats, where um, uh, before I actually started to think about the role of sila in my, my own life, and it wasn't that I was a bad person or a bad man, but, you know, I could have been the guy at the water cooler that I gave you the example of I, before I paid attention to my speech. Or you see, we, we, we go to work and we, we take the pencils and the pens and the, and the file things, and we don't think about it. Everybody takes pencils and pens from work, right? <clears throat> but when you think about it and you start to pay attention to it, you actually begin to change. You see, it's like it's not it's not the file folder. It's the quality of your trustworthiness with yourself and therefore with other people. It becomes important. You see, um, this quality of uh, not being intoxicated it becomes important. You don't want you don't want to live that way any longer. And when that's that becomes habit, the mind naturally, as you said, naturally begins to settle. So when you sit down to meditate, it's a different experience than when you're um, affected by all of these other kinds of things that happen. When When we learn to trust ourselves and respect ourselves, We also learn the value of being able to do that in relationship with other people. And people get it. We know when we're connecting with people. We know when we're in sync with people. And people know that as well. So imagine a world where people even began to taste the bliss of blamelessness imagine such a world, especially when we think of the world that we live in today and the conditions of the world. Time for one more if anyone has a comment or a question.
2: Thank you so much, Robert. Um, I heard you give this... uh, um, talk at, um, South Bay and, and it was, it struck me so much then and has, so that was by me a month ago. And, um, and it has the simplicity or just understanding, aligning yourself with virtue, even having that integrity, integrity in there has helped me so much in the last month. Mm-hmm. And my mantra has been recently, um, may I, may I, um, May I be free of animosity. Mm. And I realize hearing this today that I am saying the first precept. May I be free from um, aggression. And that is towards myself so Mm. much. May I be free of animosity towards myself and, and others and to be, um, free from their animosity as well. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just so striking now hearing this again, going, wow, and it really has made such a difference. It's kind of like a compass that can point you and then you feel safe with yourself, like you said. You can start to feel trust yourself. And then another door opens and
1: another door opens. So thank you. And thank you for for sharing that because I also want to say that um, it's not like a one-off kind of Contemplation—it's <laughs> something to return to over and over again, um, because then you can begin to track its effect in your life. You see, you uh, you do it once and you think, "Oh, this is this makes sense," and then you don't think about it again. But if you come back to it and you reflect on it over and over again, or you look at it and you say, "I I wonder what I'm missing here," or "I wonder," you see. Uh, things just begin to open up, and they get. Uh, you have access to deeper understanding, deeper, uh, and also it helps to. Um, it helps in in meditation. Actually, it it reveals the con- uh, the quality and the content of the mind. You see, and and what you do. In, in your meditation and in your mind, you you see this uh, really clearly. So you begin to see, oh, the meditation is a lot calmer now. It's a lot uh, more stable. So not always, but it is. And it helps. This, it helps this leg of Buddhism <coughs> is one that doesn't get enough airtime in the West in Asia, it definitely is. People practice this. Um, uh, when I lived in Asia, I was surprised by how many people did not meditate, but people practice sila. I mean, it just, that's thats what they do. So, I cut you off, I'm sorry.
2: I just have, have noticed that it's helped me with my confidence too Mm -hmm. and that's confidence again towards myself or just trusting myself it just gives me a little bit more confidence in myself and that is kind of um it's it's fundamental to to um to practice it's just i don't know you you can develop a kind of a refuge in yourself because you have I don't know. I can't explain that. No, you don't have
1: to explain it. You just explained it beautifully. You just explained it beautifully, beautifully. And I think that that's one of the benefits of the precepts. And the precepts in Buddhism are—they sound like the commandments in Christianity, but they're not based on um, like this idea of sin. They're—they're basically training. So, when you when you go out and you drink too much, it's not like you've committed a sin; you just made a mistake. You know, let's let's not do that the next time. Or when you <laughs> t- t- take the file folder from work, let's let's think about that more carefully. You see. So they're training precepts, and this whole this whole practice is training. It's training, 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 and it's it's a practice in training um, how to be patient and kind with yourself, how to relinquish this internal voice that beats the hell out of you, and 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 to learn how to be a friend to yourself. You see, and then all of these things happen naturally. They don't happen without effort. But they do happen naturally. So so thank you all. It's great to be here for Andrea. I hope the talk was useful in some way.